Glad y'all are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel 24. Say one thing about uh, giving before we jump in. Uh, last week I visited three of our missionary families, two in Turkey and one in Bosnia. Uh, they're all doing wonderful, said to tell you hello. The ground that they're working, very difficult. I went to church last Sunday with one of our guys. It was me and three guys. And up until that point, it had been our guy and one guy. That, that was it. That's what they had. Went to a city uh, in, on the Black Sea, 205,000 people in the city. Zero, zero local believers, none. There's one church. It's led by foreigners, and it's, uh, in a, it's, a, it's a church of Iranian refugees. That, that's great, but there's no, no Turks. Out of 205,000 people, n- none of them are following the Lord. I went to Sarajevo and Bosnia is a country of three and a half million people. And they say between 600 and 1,000 have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's it. These guys are working in really, really difficult uh, situations. You can imagine in that setting if, if one person or, or two people are, are captured by the Lord and they say they want to begin to follow how hard that would be. They're not going to be able to get a job. You write your religion on your job applications. They're not going to be able to get married. There's so many factors that we don't have to even consider here. And, and these people, are, they're faithful. They're working diligently. They're hopeful. They're, they're prayerful. And I want to encourage you to give to them. Kim pulled, put together one of these sheets. It's, these are all the long-term missionaries who consider Stonebridge their home church. Like, these are your people. And they're serving in these places all over the world. I want you to grab one on the way out. And I want you to pick one and I want you to give because Jesus says where your treasure is, your heart will be. And so if you give, it will remind you to pray. And that's what you need to do. Not just pray for those missionaries, but pray for those regions and for those cities that God would stir many people uh, to come to faith in him. There's, I think there's 12 you can give to one a month. You can pick a couple and rotate. It doesn't matter to me. But grab one of these on your way out and I want you to give to them uh, on a monthly basis. Find somebody, again, because... I, Ultimately, it's your prayers that are effective. And Jesus says where your money is, your heart will be. It will remind you uh, to pray. All right, 1 Samuel 24. Pick up right where we left off. Saul is pursuing David. An Israelite, I mean, excuse me, a Philistine army attacks Israel. So Saul's got to peel off his pursuit uh, to, to go take care of them. David moves up into this place called En Gedi. Act of time. You can miss the scope of, of what's going on, the way we're kind of moving through. We're just getting these snapshots of David's life. Uh, most likely, the period of, it, of, of his life from about chapter 19, when it says he makes good his escape, up until the end of 1 Samuel, when um, Saul dies and David is, becomes a king, it's about 10 years. So we're looking at five, six, seven, eight years of him living as a fugitive. And you can see there up on the screen that the places don't matter, but just the number of places he goes in other countries, in the wilderness, living in caves, trying to stay alive. He's living. He calls himself today, he calls himself a dog to Saul. He's living as a, a dog who's being hunted by Saul. He's got 600 guys with him. I don't even, I don't know how they're putting, I don't know how they're eating. They can't grow food because they're always on the run or they're living in a desert. I mean, just feeding 600 people. There, there is no grocery store. They can't go to Costco. I don't, I mean, I guess they're having to, I don't, they're scavenging, they're, they're looting. I don't, I don't know how they're 
just something that simple and that daily. Very, very difficult existence space. Again, we're talking years of this. Think back where you were five years ago. Now, from there to now, that point to now, you're living on the run. You don't have an address. You're constantly looking over your shoulder. You don't know where your next meal is coming from. And you didn't do anything wrong. The only reason David's a criminal is because Saul said so. He's never done anything. All he's done is serve Saul, risk his life repeatedly for Saul. And this is the way Saul is treating him. Very difficult way to live. You can read through some of the Psalms and you can, some of them don't necessarily have descriptions, but you can kind of picture, I'm betting this is, this was written, that Psalm was written during this time of his life when you see how desperate he is and how uh, desperately he's crying out to the Lord to do, do something. David didn't sign up. He didn't apply to be the king. Samuel came and found him, led by the Lord, and anointed him. It wasn't anything that he, was, he signed up for. He was called into it. And after the initial couple of years, it's really made his life terrible in a lot of ways. And today we're going to see David have an opportunity to finally do something, to finally change his circumstances, to finally take matters into his own hands, and we'll see how he responds 1 Samuel 24, starting in verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. So you can just imagine where you're living if, that, if that's what they call your place. Probably not. No five stars there. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And that's exactly what you think it is. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to the men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. The Lord's anointed or lay my hand on him for he's the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. So Saul's got this network of informants. People are loyal to him. David's in the wilderness of Engedi. He takes 3000 men, pursues David, 600 men. And then he happens. He has to go to the bathroom and he happens to go into a cave where David is. And David's men are like, now's your chance. So that's obviously a private moment for Saul. He's got no bodyguards with him. No one is with him. It's just him. Vulnerable position. And the guys are like, this is it. This is a fulfillment of this prophecy. We have no record of this prophecy in the Old Testament. It doesn't sound like anything God would say. We don't see him ever saying, do whatever you want with those people. But maybe they're paraphrasing. And they say, here's your chance. Here's your chance. I think what's probably happening is those guys are miserable, too. They've been living this way, maybe not as long as David, but for a period of time. And and they're finally saying, hey, here's an opportunity. And they know David moves as he's led by the Lord. And I think they're just using some God talk to try to get David to do something. So they don't have to live in caves anymore. And David sneaks up behind Saul and he cuts off a corner of his robe. And it says afterwards, I think it's probably immediately because he's able to keep his men from attacking Saul. So I think in almost immediately 
his conscience stricken, or literally, his heart hits him. That's what that means. His heart hits him because of what he does. And he says to the guys, y'all, nobody's touching Saul. Nobody's touching him. Again, think about years of running for his life. Years of living as a fugitive. And he finally has an opportunity to do something. Cuts off a piece of this guy's robe. Hit his heart. Hit not going to allow you to do anything to him either. Verse 8. David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David has been on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into, the, into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I've not wronged you, but you're hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evil evil doers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom is the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing, a dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hands. So Saul leaves. David calls out after him. First time, they pro- David hadn't spoken to Saul in years. In uh, 19, I think it's about uh, verse 6, it says, Jonathan has reconciled Saul to David. And then not too long after David, or excuse me, Saul throws another spear at him. David makes good his escape. There's no, no back and forth. So it's been years. Five years, six years, seven years, eight years since David said anything to Saul. All Saul is, Saul's getting these, he's paranoid, he's, people are talking to him, David's lying in wait for you, David's part of a conspiracy, David's trying to kill you, and, and David comes out to say, none of it's true. None of it's true. I don't know who's telling you those things, but it's not true. And he takes his posture of humility, bows down before him. He calls him my father. He calls him Lord. He calls him the Lord's anointed. And he says, I could have killed you today, but I didn't. And he holds up a piece of robe. This is how close I was to you, and you didn't even know it. This is how close I was, and you didn't even know I was behind you. And he says, God is going to take care of you. I didn't kill you. And I could have. I'm allowing God. I'm making space for God to take care of it. David does not sugarcoat. I want God to avenge me for all the wrongs you've done. He doesn't pretend Saul's treated him well. But he says, I'm not, it's not my job to mete out punishment. It's not my job to judge. That's God. He's going to avenge the wrongs you've done to me. And he's going to deliver me. He's going to vindicate me. I'm looking to him to do those things. And here's Saul's response. When David finished saying this. Saul asks, is that your voice, David, my son? Again, it had been years since they'd spoken. And he wept aloud, you're more righteous than I. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You just told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he, not, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord. That you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. So um, maybe you've almost uh, been in a car wreck before. Something that 
I think Saul was shaken. I think when David came up behind him with that piece of robe and called out to him, I think Saul saw his life flash before his eyes. And I do think it shook him emotionally, just like it does for you when you slam on your brakes and barely miss hitting the car. I think that's what was going on. I think it really did shake him. And and out of that startledness, out of that uh, shock, he says, David, you're a better man than me and you're going to be the king. He acknowledges the truth of that. He's probably known that for a while. This is the first time he ever that we have recorded that he publicly acknowledges that David's going to be the king. And he says to David, it's an oath David's already made to Jonathan, his best friend, Saul's son. Don't wipe out everybody in my family. That's what it would be normal to do. If I become the king, I'm going to wipe out all of my uh, potential competition. And, of course, David's already committed to not doing that. And so he says he won't. But David doesn't, David doesn't believe Saul, honestly. He doesn't. Saul goes home and David goes back to the cave. He doesn't believe Saul's changed. Saul has tried or uh, attempted to, to reconcile to David before, and it didn't take long before he starts throwing spears. And so... David's not, he's not buying it at this point. He goes back to his stronghold and then Saul goes home. I was thinking about this, the, the key, key action, Saul, uh, David cutting Saul's robe and then being conscience stricken or being convicted about that. That's the, the key piece in this chapter. Everything pivots on that. What exactly is going on there? Why would David's heart hit him for cutting off a piece of rope? Like he, why? Why would he be conscience stricken over something like that? Especially when you think of all of the things that Saul has done to him. Why in the world would what seems maybe a maybe a a prank? I don't even know what category, what bucket you would put that. He didn't hurt Saul. Maybe it embarrassed him. It did startle him for sure after the fact. But Saul wasn't necessarily in any type of danger. Why would it? Why would David be conscience stricken over cutting the corner off of Saul's robe? I think it's an Old Testament picture of a New Testament truth. Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And the scribes and the Pharisees were the best rule keepers in the world. Nobody was better than them. They were the best at keeping the rules. And Jesus says that's not enough. You can't be an expert rule follower. If all you are is an expert rule follower, you don't get to enter the kingdom. We've said before, when we're thinking about David, the key thing about David, a man after God's own heart, and he's a man after God's own heart because God looks at the heart. It's not because David is sinless. He blows it big time on a repeated basis. It's because he's responding and he repents. Guys, y'all aren't touching him, and I'm not touching him. We're, nobody's touching Saul. As soon as the Lord pricks his heart over what he's done, there's a change in his Behavior and his attitude. That's what it means to be a man after God's own heart. And so when we think about our righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and the Pharisees, don't think about keeping the rules better. But think about your heart and the motivation for why you do what you do. And Jesus gives seven, six or seven examples. There's two up there up on the screen. And I think if Jesus was talking to David, he would say, you've heard that it was that it's been written. Don't raise your hand against the Lord's anointed. Don't kill him. You don't touch him. God's put him there. You leave him alone. But I say to you, if you cut the corner off his robe, you've already raised your hand against him in your heart. You're already under judgment. The same heart posture that would lead you to cut the corner of his robe, if left unchecked, leads to raising your hand 
against him. It's this grasping for something God has promised. It's this self-assertion. I'm the Lord's anointed. Samuel dumped oil on me ten years ago. This guy's a terrible person. The Spirit of God has left him. He's tormented by evil spirits. He's evil. He's wicked. And it's mine. And I'm going to take it. That was the temptation of David in that cave. And when he cut the corner off of Saul's robe, I think the reason he was conscience stricken is because that was the heart. That was an expression of him grabbing something. That was an expression of him asserting his own will, reaching for the throne that God had promised him. You can see it even when he talks to Saul and he says, basically, when he waves the piece of his robe, it's, I could have. I didn't, but I could have. That idea that somehow David's in control on some level, at least in that moment, David was in control of Saul's fate versus the Lord being in control. Again, I think it was a, a bit of a grasping from David. And you can see that in the way he talks about the, thing, the, uh, the incident. The things he won't do. I won't lift up my hand. I'm not, I'm not going to grab. You see that after he's conscience stricken. I'm not going to do that thing. I, I'm, no, I'm not going to raise my hand. I'm not going to touch that, that commitment in David to say, I'm not going to grab for the throne. And then that submission in him. God's going to judge. God's going to avenge. God's going to deliver. Two sides of the same coin. I'm not going to grab onto anything. And I'm going to allow God to move me into the right position at the right time. None of you are ever going to be a fugitive, I hope. You're not. And so sometimes the story of David can seem very distant from us. Be hard to find parallels. We don't see ourselves in the story. Maybe you have a terrible boss and so you can make your boss Saul and you David. But even that's going to be, your boss has never thrown a spear at you and you can get another job. It's, it's, there, it's hard to find difficult, it's hard to find parallels. But one thing I think maybe we all are tempted to, to do at times is to grab on, to assert our own will, to grasp, to cut the corner of a robe, metaphorically speaking. And, and before we dive into that, let me just say, just to pull back for a second, don't lose the the emotional spot that David is in. Sometimes we can read this and think, well, it was easy for him, easy for him, easy for him. We're just reading words on a page. This is Psalm 142 that was written uh, during the time when Jesus, or excuse me, when David was in the cave. And you can see his, he's desperate. He's a miserable man in a lot of ways. Again, he spent years on the run from Saul, who is unjustly pursuing him, over something that David didn't even go looking for. God called David to be a king. David submitted to God's will in his life, and it's brought him misery for years. For years it has. And you can see there up on the screen the, the desperation in David. The, again, I, I would say he's miserable in a lot of ways. I don't want you to lose sight of that and treat this too uh, academically. So, we're all tempted, I think, at times to grasp. And to grab and to assert our own will. Three, three places that you see that here. Maybe one of these will connect with you. One is when we're uh, treated unfairly. There's a temptation. When we're treated unfairly to stand up for ourselves and say, you're not going to do this anymore. You can't, you're not going to walk all over me. Some of us are justice-oriented people. And sometimes that's great when that sense of justice is on behalf of others. But when we uh, begin to 
live out of that on our, for our own sake, it can, it can be graspy pretty quick. And maybe even more than being treated unfairly, it's when we're misunderstood. And I think that's what you see with David. David's going out to say to Saul, I don't know what they're saying about me, but it's not true. None of the things that you're hearing are true, and here's proof. I have this piece of a robe that shows that I'm innocent, that I'm righteous, that I'm not part of a conspiracy, that I'm not trying to kill you. I could have, and I didn't. He's defending himself. He becomes his own defense attorney as soon as he cuts the corner off that robe. And many of us maybe are tempted to do the same thing. How much time do you spend chasing down rumors? How much time do you spend trying to set the record straight? Jesus, when he's falsely accused uh, during the, the last day of his life, the, the Bible says like a sheep before its shearers are silent. So the Son of Man doesn't open his mouth. He doesn't, he doesn't take the bait. He doesn't defend himself at all. He keeps his mouth closed. So difficult to do. Very difficult to say, I'm going to let Jesus be my defense attorney. I'm going to let Jesus be my advocate. I'm not going to go chasing down every rumor. I'm not going to try to set every record straight. I'm not going to correct every misunderstanding. Very difficult to do that. We can have a tendency when those things are happening to try to grasp a little bit. What about when you're tired of waiting? Again, think of David. Probably anointed at 15 or 16 at this point. He's 26, 27, 28 years old maybe. It's a long time to wait. And sometimes when we believe the Lord has spoken to us, and he has, the clock is ticking and we look for opportunities to maybe help him along because he moves slow based on how we keep time. It's the Abraham and Sarah deal. You're going to have a son. Year one, no, two, no, three, no, four, no, five, no, six, no, seven, no, eight, no, nine, nope, ten, nope, eleven, nope, twelve. We're done. We're done. How much longer we got to wait? Here's Hagar, Sarah's maidservant. Let's make her a concubine. We know God's promised us a son. He's had whatever, 144 months to make it happen, and he hadn't. That's a pretty long time. So maybe this way's better. And maybe this way's at least acceptable at this point after waiting for so long. It's easy, it's understandable. How long do we have to wait for God to do the thing that he said he's going to do? We're living in it every day. Easy to feel forgotten. It's like nothing's hard for him at all. Nothing's hard. So we're like, come on. It's not hard, and you said you were going to do it. What's the holdup? It can be difficult to run on God's schedule. It can be difficult to wait because we never see. We don't know. We don't know when the promise is going to be fulfilled. We can look back and say, oh, okay, it was fine. But that's always retrospectively. When we're in the middle of it, we don't know is today the day or is tomorrow the day. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. At some point, we just, let's speed this thing up. David has an opportunity. Hey, this was a promise that was made to you, legitimate. You're the anointed one of the Lord. You have this track record of God's favor on your life for the last decade. Let's move this thing along. Saul is a wicked man. We have a track record to back that up. Come on. Let's get going. Easy in those moments to grasp. What about when the door is open? Here's this opportunity. David, David's men, and Saul all see this as providential. 
that Saul and David are in the same cave at the same time. What are the chances of that? What are the chances that they happen to be in the same cave at the same time? And Saul in this vulnerable position, very low. And so David says, the Lord delivered you into my hands. David's men say, the Lord delivered Saul into your hands. And Saul says, God delivered me into your hands. All of them agree. This is orchestrated by God. God did this. In our way of talking, our Christianese, we would say it was an open door. All the circumstances lined up. It was obviously God who put all these pieces together. David doesn't allow the fact that a door is open to be the determining factor in how he acts. He lives out of conviction, not circumstance against the Lord's anointed. I can't do that. That's me asserting myself. Again, cutting off the corner, he feels convicted and there's repentance there. He tells his men, nobody's touching Saul. And then when he's making his defense before Saul, this speech, he says, I'm not, I, I did not kill you and I'm not touching you. Hands off. For us, how many times do we just take the opportunity that, prevents it, that presents itself that very well may be an open door from the Lord? You know, the same word, it's a Greek word in the New Testament, can be translated temptation or test, depending on the context. Same word, either temptation or test. Temptation, it's a lure to evil. Satan's behind it. You, re, you resist it. Test. It's, a, it's an opportunity to see what's in us. God's behind it. And we need to walk through it. Very different response. Very different motivation behind those things. If it's a temptation or a test. I think God is testing David. God never tempts. The Bible very clearly says he doesn't do that. But God does test. And the Bible very clearly says he does. First Thessalonians. God tests our hearts. Hebrews eleven seven. God tested Abraham when he said to him, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. God wants to know what we're made of. God knows everything. Absolutely. He wants to see what we're made of. Let's see that out here. Let's demonstrate that. For him and for us. God tests us. And I think he tests David. This is the first opportunity David has to do anything. He's got 600 men. Saul takes his elite force and has 3,000. He's got a much larger army, tens of thousands. David doesn't have a shot if he's trying to go with Saul one-on-one or army against army. He gets slaughtered. This is the first time in all of his time on the run that David actually has an opportunity, actually has Saul at a point of vulnerability. And it's a test. I think God wants to know, let's see what's in this guy. When he has the opportunity to grab, to grasp, when he has an opportunity to assert his will, what's he going to do? David cuts off a corner of the road and is convicted. His heart hits him and he pulls back. He passes. He passes the test. And for us, sometimes those open doors, that's all they are. It's just a test. Let's see. Are you going to stay committed? To something that you committed to, even though there's an opportunity maybe to go jump in a different direction. Maybe better in some ways. Are you going to stay faithful? It's hard to know. Some of you are martyrs by nature, and so if it's hard, you're in. And so when you hear something like this, that's what you hear. The hard way is always the right way. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a... A sense in which saying just because the door is open, God very well may have opened the door. And he very well may want you to walk right past it. 
It may just be a test. And when God tests us, it's not because he's being cruel. It's not because he's, he, he's looking for us to fail. When God gives us a test, it's, it's open book. He gives us everything that we need to pass it. He doesn't withdraw his spirit from us and say, let's see how you do on your own. Spirit lives within us and we can be led by him and not governed by our circumstances. And so it could very well be for you today that you are being tested by the Lord. And if you read in the Bible, you see with Abraham, you see with Jesus in the wilderness in some ways, that when these tests come, almost always there's some level of, we'll call it promotion, but don't hear that in any kind of materialistic sense, that's coming after. What God says to Abraham is, I've seen what you've done, now surely I will bless. I'm going to do this because I see what kind of guy you are. So don't hear these tests as, it's not like your finals in school at all. It's an opportunity for you to show, kind of show who you are. And it's not divorced from the Lord at all. His spirit lives within you, and that's what he's looking for. Are you going to be led by the spirit in this moment? Are you going to be, for David, are you going to be led by the spirit in this moment? Are you going to allow the circumstances to cause you to make a a sinful choice? Raising your hand against Saul. Close your eyes with me if you would. I'll give you three things to think about. Three things to think about. Bo and Megan are going to sing, and so you don't need to sing with them. We'll just be quiet as they do. One test. Would you say this morning that you do feel tested by the Lord? Are you in a situation maybe that's difficult? Again, think about where David was. It's difficult. Maybe you have an opportunity. To change that. You can make a move. Would you submit that? My encouragement. Submit the open door very well may be provided by him. And he very well may want you to walk right past it. Maybe not. But he might. The key is to submit to him. God, I want to be led by your spirit. I don't want my circumstances to determine what I do. What David did in that moment. Everybody says God did this. Saul says, Who lets their enemy go? Someone who's living out of conviction, that's who. Second, are you in a spot where you've been waiting for something for a long time? And maybe there's a sense in you that says, I've got some options here where I can move the ball forward, where I can stir some things up, where I can make some things happen. Would you this morning submit timing to the Lord? Those ideas may be from him and he may, be, he may say, yes, do those things. But would you submit that to him? Begin by acknowledging your That you're growing weary and waiting. 
Right now, would you say there's a spot where you're being walked on and treated unfairly, or maybe you're being you're misunderstood. You may you may be being slandered, even. Are you tempted to set the record straight, to stand up for yourself, become your own defense attorney? Everything in us kind of rises up at those kinds of injustices. Would you be willing this morning to say to the Lord, you be my advocate? I don't know what that's going to mean practically, but the heart posture is, God, you be my advocate. You be my defender. You be my refuge. God, if I have to be treated unfairly, I don't like it. But you don't treat me fairly. You treat me graciously. You treat me better than I deserve. And I live in this culture of grace. And so if I'm being treated unfairly, I pray that you would give me grace in the midst of that as well. That means you have to like it. But does the Lord want you to live in it? That's what you're asking him, God. Do I need to continue to live in this if you're being treated unfairly? So just ask him those questions as Bo and Megan sing. If, if one of those situations resonates in your heart, if, if you're not in a spot like that, I'd encourage you during this time to pray for people who are. It's very difficult in those settings to know which way is up. Our, our flesh, we, just, we desire comfort. We have people who love us, who are pointing ways out. Hey, what about this? What about this? What about this? It can be very difficult to know what to do. So if, it, if that's not you this morning, please take a few minutes and pray for those uh, who are trying to hear the Lord. So God, would you speak to us now in these moments? I pray for those who are being tested by you. That their faith would be proved genuine. Not that they would execute perfectly, but their heart would be obedience. David didn't execute perfectly, but he was quick to respond. And I pray for the men and women in this room who are being tested that that would be their heart as well. Acknowledging their need and their dependence upon you. Desiring to please you. God, I pray for those who've been waiting. God, would you renew them here in these next couple of minutes? Would you refresh their souls? Would you give them perseverance and hope? And God, I pray for those who are being walked on and trashed. them of the wrongs that have been done. 
whatever that looks like, that you would deliver them. So come now, Holy Spirit, and speak to us as 